right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Mostly Ghostly with Matt and Ray. How you doing over there, Ray? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. We're uh, we're we're coming to an end in this haunted Massachusetts book. It's going to be sad to see it go. <laughs> but we're on our our latest and last episode of this book, not the show, the book, last chapter, and this chapter is is based on Cape Cod in the islands. Are you familiar? You you ever been down the Cape and seen anything weird or feel anything weird? I've been there, but not not very often. I don't recall anything. Yeah, this was. Um, I have a story where me and my cousins and you know my whole family kind of went camping, but me and my cousins waited till everybody went to bed. This is up by the Cape Cod Canal, and um, so this is one of the nights that I've seen the weird lights too that we talked about in the past. But um, with this, there was we, we went down the canal, we walked it. There was weird things like um, there was this weird house. There was a whole stretch of houses that were all empty, but they were all like, like perfect, like they were just built, which had a created like a really eerie, almost Elm Street feel to it for any Nightmare on Elm Street fans out there. Um, we've seen that. We walked by. Um, this uh, when we walked by a certain way, when we came back. My cousin claims that, you know, rest in peace with somebody's name was spray-painted on the street. Um, it definitely was done, but he says it wasn't there when we first passed uh, that street, which was an interesting take. There was one where there was a guy, old guy fishing, um, had one of those old-school bike with bikes with the baskets on the back with the rod in it, and he was riding right up the middle of the road with his head down, not look, looking where he was going. And I remember seeing him and being like stepping off to the side a little bit and being like, hey, you know, catch anything? Catch anything good? Um, before he got up to us, because I remember I had worry, and I even expressed at that time I had worry that he was just going to approach us and then when it was too late, lift up his head and see the deadlights or something, you know what I mean? Something crazy. But um, that, and uh, there was also, we heard some noises down by the water when we were walking. Um, I, one of my other cousins kept saying he, he kept hearing like a rustling in in this area. And uh, there's probably a couple other things. I want to have my cousin on to talk about it, but that's good enough for now. And uh, later in life, you know, I was working at a job and I was talking about haunted things with people. And they brought up the fact that the Cape Cod Canal is haunted, which I never knew. So when I heard that, I was even more like, oh, shit. You know what I mean? So I definitely put some faith into the fact that, uh, you know, some of these Cape Cod situations are going to be some true real deal stuff. You know, you know, Cape Cod's kind of a weird little area. It's fun. It's nice. It's, uh, it's very old in itself, if I remember correctly. So it has it has time for a history to be made there, you know. Oh, yeah, because uh, anything like the Cape, uh, if you're talking out in the bay, ports, uh, the canal, that would have been one of the first areas settled when people got off a boat. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, you know, the Gloucester area we were talking about before. Yeah, that in Salem, yeah. Yeah. 
So I'll, I'll jump into this a little bit. Uh, Cape Cod looks like a giant arm extending out from America into the Atlantic Ocean. With Sandwich and Barnstable at its shoulder and Provincetown at its fist. It seems as if nearly everyone of the 250 plus bed and breakfasts on the Cape is said to be haunted. That's, that, was that all of them they said? That's fun. I believe it though. We um we get a, like last episode the episode before last we were talking about you know the Lizzie Borden house and I the bed that's turned into a bed and breakfast as well. But uh, 11 million tourists now visiting the region each year. It's no wonder there has been such a recent deluge of ghost stories as more and more people are being exposed to Cape Cod's ghosts. The neighboring islands of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket are not without their own share of ghost stories. The residents just don't like to admit it. As opposed to the Cape Cod inhabitants who boast of their ghosts, but ghosts and UFOs have definitely gotten up close and personal with the rich and famous on the state's two largest islands. I know that um, John Belushi's buried out there. He might even have a story. Could be. You know? Also, Cape Cod's over where they did uh, Jaws, I think, right? In between us and the Cape. The uh, our first story up on the uh, on the docket is the Barnstable House, a famously haunted Barnstable House at three ten Main thirty ten Main Street in Barnstable is no longer an actual residence but an office building that houses a number of Cape Cod area businesses and agencies. You would never know by looking at it from the road that the impeccable structure is nearly three hundred years old. And you certainly would not know that it would be haunted incredibly. Uh, Many of the haunted happenings at the Barnstable House have involved fire in one way or another. In 1975, the local volunteer fire department was called to the house, which was an inn at the time, to find the source of heavy smoke that was pouring from the roof. Firefighters performed in a thorough search but found uh, no fire. However, they did find dense smoke in the attic. So they cleared the mysterious smoke and prepared to leave. As they were standing outside, several of them spotted a peculiar woman in a long white gown, the same woman they thought they had seen in an upstairs window but were unable to find inside. Some said she had long brown hair but others said it was blonde. A woman drifted fluidly among the men, asking strange questions in the hindsight. They agreed that she seemed to be drifting too fluidly, as she were hovering several inches above the snow. The firemen really didn't give the woman much thought at the time, though, because the night air was dark and thick with smoke and fog, and there was so much activity, their eyes might have just been playing tricks on them. But back at the station... They compared notes and had to admit that nothing about the woman made sense. And nothing about the mysterious smoke that had no source made sense neither. Another fire-related incident involved a rowdy group of high school students. Those damn high school students are always up to no good. (laughs) Who who were given permission to spend the night and take infrared photographs in the dark to see... Oh, infrared. 
ugh, infrared photographs in the dark to see if they could capture the alleged ghosts of the house on film. The owner was in bed listening to the ruckus when the fire started up in her fireplace out of the blue, and it was roaring. Sensing that one of the spirits was angry about the noisy student, she called out for the kids to settle down. As soon as they did, the, the fire shrank, and when the students finally fell silent, the fire went out completely at exactly the same moment. Uh, then there was that time, uh, a mother and son who could see dead people, like the Sixth Sense Ray, um, were guests at the inn. The little boy drew a picture of the inn with fire and ghosts shooting out its windows. He showed it to the caretaker at the time and told her the ghosts were terrible and wanted to burn the house down. After the boy and his mother left to settle in for the night, the caretaker went downstairs and found an old candle brightly lit. She hadn't lit it, but she blew it out, best believe. And a few minutes later, when she was walking by the same candle, she found it again burning brightly. This happened four consecutive times. Other things went on in the house, too. Doors mysteriously slammed shut. The people could feel cold spots when climbing up the staircase. A rocking chair rocked by itself in front of the fireplace. But one of the strangest incidents occurred one day when a man in a colonial clothing walked through the bar area with an old-time tray and empty glasses, as if he worked there. One impressed guest applauded the owner of the inn for such authenticity in his employees, but then was quite taken back to learn that the inn had no such employees. Several people have died on the premises, including a young girl who drowned in a stream that ran under the house, and previous owner who hanged himself from a tree on the property. Also, also several owners of their family members died peacefully in the home. Over the years, they passed it down from generation to generation, any number of spirits may have been haunted, uh, haunted the house at any given time. But if any are still there, they are virtually imperceptible, sub, subly, subly co coexisting with the many businesses whose offices are now in the remarkable house. So I'll backtrack a little bit. Um, you, you know, if, 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 if somebody passes peacefully... Do you think that they would still stay back? They may stay back if they have a uh, strong attachment to the place. Yeah. Um, yeah, strong emotional attachment. They may not want to leave. It's true. I like the story about the girl with the white dress and the, and the fire. That was that was like almost a grade A ghost story. That uh, you know, one of the I like that one. Fire ones are always weird because you know that when they they. It's a terrible death, so it's like it leaves a bigger imprint, you know what I mean? At least that's how I feel about it. And, um, yes. I was going to say, fire also, um, you take it down to a molecular level, there's a lot of energy release, there's the heat, there's a lot going on. And like yeah. you just said, it's a very uh, painful and traumatic death. For someone to get trapped there... Um, and then use some of that energy to manifest later would not surprise me at all. Yeah. The, um, you got the story of the mother and son did see dead people. It's kind of, kind of a common thing, you know. Um, let's ghost in general. 
It's interesting. When they say they see dead people, I don't know why they don't just say spirits or, or ghosts. You think they're actually meaning, like, raw, like, freshly killed, um... How we talk about when a, when a, when a, when you see a spirit, it can either be something comforting or something scary. You think uh, that's more of a scary one? I would say scary can also be their background. They simply see the dead, recognize them as the dead, and it's their name for it. I see dead people. They see them clearly as people. Yeah. Um, it's just a to me more of a descriptive term. Truth. I see dead people. You've seen The Sixth Sense, of course, right? Oh, yeah. Classic. The um, next story up, the old Yartmouth Inn. When Arpad Voros and his wife, Sheila Fitzgerald, purchased the, the old Yartmouth Inn at 223 in Route 6A in Yartmouth Court in 1996, they were naive about the spirit world. The previous owner had told them the inn was haunted, but a couple didn't. Re- but the couple didn't really buy into such silliness. Uh, this place was much too cozy to harbor a ghost. Ghosts belonged in scary, foreboding, dingy old houses on treeless hilltops, not in such a fine establishment as the old Yarmouth. Boy, were they wrong, and they're not afraid to admit it now. The first proof that this was haunted. Uh, under the new owner's tenure was when Sheila's sister, Maureen, went down to the kitchen early one morning before anyone else had been up. She was stunned to find that the bread mixer had somehow turned itself on. Another morning, a customer was heading to the kitchen to help herself to coffee. She stopped at the swinging doors to figure out what was the door swinging for, which way it was out, when she heard a muffled voice tell her to push... Then one night, when she was dancing a jig, when Sheila, Maureen, and Aprad were having dinner in the tavern, the, the window next to their table began moaning and rattling without uh, provocation, um, and then fell silent. I think it's, he was trying to get a threesome going. He was trying to scare him up. Um, that's not the only thing that has rattled on the premises. One man who was spending the night in one of the four guest rooms was awakened one night when he felt someone sit on his bed, but nobody was there. That's kind of a common one, too, that presence. So he pulled, yep. so he pulled the blankets up over his head. Moments later, he felt his feet being massaged. There you go, not, bad, not a bad deal. Get a foot massage. Unfortunately, those hands were icy, though. So that, you know, you know, icy hot, though. Some people like that feel. Even though they were tucked well under the blankets, and if that wasn't bad enough, the attention-seeking phantom grabbed one of the bed posts at the front of the bed and started shaking the bed until the poor guest fled from the room and waited out on the deck until morning and froze to death. When he told Sheila in the armpit about the hair-raising experience... By then, they had experienced enough to know better than to dismiss the man's story of fabrication. It just sounded so dramatic. But then, Apparat's 90-year-old mother came out on the deck to join them and said she couldn't sleep because of all the rattling and clanging going on in that particular guest room that night. The old Artemis menu cover include even more ghost stories that Sheila wrote up. She shared the following with me. There was a stack of ashtrays at the end of the bar. 
We were startled when one of those ashtrays slipped off the top stack, but thought nothing of it until the ashtray zoomed down in the length of the bar. Several years ago, a party of ten came into the tavern for dinner. These people were not regulars, and I wanted to go over to the table and welcome them. I had just finished a conversation with an adjoining table about the inn and recent ghost sightings when the older woman at the end of the new group's table announced that ghosts did not exist and anyone who thought they did should have their heads examined. We all laughed. And then, without explanation, the front cover of the air conditioner fell off. And instead of dropping to the floor, it sailed through the air and gazed at the top of the woman's head some eight feet away. In October of 2003... We hosted a series of seances, that's probably not that good, um, that were merely theatrical performance, but aroused out of ghost, uh, our ghost nonetheless. The medium spent several days prepping the Red Room in, to reso- resemble Victorian-era parlor. On the gas stove in the Red Room, we had a glass vase filled with silk roses and blue marbles. One morning, we found the vase split perfectly into two pieces, yet otherwise intact. Laying on the brick uh, hearth uh, on either side of the gas stove, the blue marbles were laid out in front of the hearth in perfect arch, and silk roses were fanned out in between the marbles. Arpad and the, and I were in awe, and this confirmed our status as reluctant believers. Paranormal experiences at the historic old Yarmouth run the gamut from the very mundane to the outright brazen. But each and every one of them adds spice to the already tasty cuisine. Sheila said that their ghosts are never evil or ill-intentioned, just playful and mischievous. Yeah, um, I like it. You know, these inns. We got a lot of a lot of haunted inns in the Cape. I've I've known. There's a whole book on haunted inns I might pick up out of the Cape strictly. Um, but yeah. It's um, it, it, it appears that stuff's still happening, you know, to this current day. I think the last year was two thousand three, which actually really isn't that current when you think about it. Um, but yeah, I uh, what'd you think of that that, that the inn? A lot of those inns did start as a residence. I'm curious as to what may have happened there in the past uh, to the people when it was a residence. And you go forward, it becomes an in, people notice things. Mm-hmm. When it starts to get a reputation, more people go, including people wanting and looking for experiences. Yeah. So they're lending their energy to it. And this just kind of snowballs and snowballs, which makes it easier. But all of that en- energy and all of the seekers coming in mm-hmm. for whatever is in there to manifest. Yeah. And uh, it just becomes a great sight for it to happen because it's whatever is there is being fed all that energy yeah if you were laying in bed and something started massaging your feet would you stop or would you let it continue to go oh i'd stop it i have rules you don't touch me i'd let it continue to massage my feet when do you get that tree i don't get that treatment i'll take a nice foot massage i'm gonna pay for that you gotta pay for those foot massages, like prostitution. Go to the go to the little go to the uh, the the prostitution shop. Every town has one now, and you put your feet up on the slab, and they give you the good rub down. 
think everybody should get their feet massaged. It's the most, almost probably the most important body part you have that make, keeps you going, you know what I mean, to a degree. It's probably the top five at least, probably. You know, there's, there's more important things like hearts and stuff, but um, <coughs> I'm coughing up a storm. But I think feet feet should definitely be t- taken care of. Now, I mean, absolutely. Races, absolutely. Well, the other thing is that uh, once that massage is done, what price tag? What's the spirit going to ask for? Oh, well... You can always argue with them and say that's bad. That's bad business. You can't just do it. And this isn't some third third world country when you're walking around a resort, outside of a resort or somewhere, and they're just they're approaching you to buy you know little little lockets of their sand in it, and they're pushing it on you, and you don't want to buy it, but they keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And then they like they say they give you a break for fifteen bucks, and then you walk to the next station, and it's right there for five bucks. And you got took it and you got had, and you're in a third world country, so you don't know what to do, and you don't know who to contact. That's how it is. You got to be careful. Yeah, but once that spirit starts it, if you let it go, once it's over, yeah, it's time to pay the piper. I hear you. I hear you. In a situation like that, you think it would be that that it could excel to that uh, lemon from a, like a, a, a rub to. A darker deed. I, I think it would just be some type of um, communication thing, you know. And to go back to some of the other inns that we talked about in establishments that were haunted, the ones that had like the managers and the people that owned it, they were still kind of like trying to do whatever they could do to make the stay more comfortable. Um, so I'd almost put it in the category where I, it would be trying to make you more comfortable instead of trying to, you know, buy your soul off you, switch off of the your soul or something, you know. Well, I can, I agree, it's probably not that severe in a, a situation like that. Yeah. Uh, particularly that, that in, but anytime you make any connection, once you said yes, you're opening a small doorway. Yeah. Now, whether it's uh, future communication or an attachment, you are opening a door by letting them, uh, in this case, massage your feet or letting them talk to you. And you've got to be very careful when you do that. That includes uh, ghost investigations. What doors do you open? And you've got to be very careful when you do that and have your protection. Um, I would say for myself, no, like I said before, nothing touches me. Hell yeah. Well, you're a stronger man than me, Ryan. We're going to be doing some investigating soon. Our next guest up is... Um Retro West, uh, they're out of Western Massachusetts, and uh, they're going to be on the show, I think, our next next time we record, I think we'll be recording with them, but they've also invited us, because we're all Massachusetts people, to uh, accompany them sometime on an investigation, yeah, and I told them we'll do a nice, we'll do like an on-location uh, show, you know, live from the, live from ground zero, see if we can catch anything cool. So, that sounds good. Yeah, so folks, be on the lookout. Um, our next story is called Screeching Hannah Screechum, which from the get-go, I already want to say it's fake, and somebody, it was someone that was a bully that gave her this nickname. Uh, that's all it really stems from, that nickname, probably. But we'll dive in and see what's reality here. Back in the days of piracy and witch hysteria, 
Canis Screechum lived alone in a humble shanty. This is almost like a poem. Um, I'm, 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 I'm believing less and less with each word. Humble shanty near Bonstable, overlooking Catuit Bay. The old woman had deep, dark eyes, the kind that paranoid types call black and menacing. And her laugh, her laugh was like the screech of a seagull. The locals, who at the time were suspicious of anyone a little different than themselves, thought it was odd for a woman to wear black cloak and to keep herself like Hannah did. Such a fuss they made over the poor woman that the so-called pillars of the community decided to pay her a visit and insist that she leave the area. Uh, that did not go over well. Hannah was furious, and her guard dogs... Those witches are always having guard dogs, you notice them? Um, sensing their, their mistress's anger, chased the men away. A week later, the entire area was stricken with an epidemic called COVID-19. Oh, I mean, smallpox. Of course, the locals were sure Hannah had caused it. Again, they approached her, but this time they took her forcibly to the courthouse to, tr uh, to be tried with witchcraft. The townspeople who were amassing an angry mob outside of the courthouse were so eager to blame someone for their misfortunes that they stormed into the building partway through the trial. They dragged uh, the as-yet-uncharged woman out to a tree where they promptly hanged her. See, this goes back to what we talked about previously in the, the, those witch days, those witch trial days, where even they didn't like you, they didn't like anything about you, you were, you were gone, you were finished. What a weird... Oh, yeah. yeah, I wonder what that... The, there had to have... Society, the next generation or two generations from that, had to have kind of had some type... You know how they say every people carry other generations' depressions and shit like that? Like the sadness, like... Like Germany after the Nazis, like the Germans had, like they felt that shame for, you know, they're still, I'm sure there's one, they're, they're still feeling it, but like the whole thing with um, the wrongdoings, you know, of of your ancestors and what they did to other people. You know, you could take slavery into account too. Terrible thing. Um, you know, I say a lot of people, but I was talking to somebody the other day who thinks that there's still some... That, 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 you know, I, we're not going to get into the racism thing, but, uh, <laughs> that's not too ghostly, but yeah, I think it's more just that, that, that you get demonized and they, they bury you away type deal, which is unfortunate. I think this is the same type of story with this girl as well. Opinion? Well, there are, it's called generational curses. Yeah. Um, that's what happens, and it can be passed on within a family. The actions of a member in a family, for instance, mm -hmm. um, is carried down, uh, sometimes emotionally and sometimes can manifest as physical illness. Um, that's carried down in the family line until you break that curse. It doesn't have to be a curse as in uh, someone actually, you know, evil eye or puts a curse on you. Mm -hmm. It's the person's actions that they're paying for, and it's they've taken that on themselves, and they passed it down. And it can go for quite a few generations until you break it. Well, yeah, because I like I said, I think it would have that... that it kind of goes into the thing about the people doing and killing all these people. It's that weird guilt. You know what I mean? There's a guilt or a whole vibe and aura that comes with all that bad energy. You know what I mean? 
And like every every other spiritual thing, it's hard to shake. You were going to say? Oh, some people might you you might also call that a spirit uh, generational karma. Mm. It's it's the payback for those those done, and you have to either make up for it or break it somehow. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. There's a little bit more. I'll finish up. Uh, very shortly thereafter, a mysterious pirate and two of his crew members arrived in town and cut the lifeless body down, then fled to Nosy Point. I don't want to know what they did with their body. Uh, when they, those those pirates are always up to no good. When they were finally captured, the pirate admitted to uh, being the woman's son and said that he had buried the woman somewhere on the point uh, with his cachet of treasure. Neither uh, the body nor the treasure has ever been found, but many people believe that Hannah Screaming now haunts Nosy Point, guarding not only her son's treasure but also the treasure of the famous pirate Captain Kidd which is also believed to be buried there. An apparition in her likeness has been seen wandering along the shoreline. Nobody knows whether the piercing cry they hear at sunset, even to this day, is her gull-like laughter or her death scream. Um, are you familiar with Captain Kidd? Have you ever, I've never heard about that. Uh, was at one time, forgot the details. Yeah. Is he like a local folklore guy from around here, or is it a bigger... Is he like a mask guy, or is it he come from afar? Do you, do you remember any of that at all? I don't remember, but he was fairly big time in his day. That much I remember. In the pirate world? I want to get into the pirate world one of these days and figure out. The, uh, oh, yeah. The, he, he was big time then. The original Hells Angels. The original biker <laughs> gang with the pirates. All right. Jumping Black Flash. Not to be confused with the Whoopi Goldberg film. Um, whoever said black isn't a color, this is a very racist book. They said something else that was crazy before. Just joking, then they're not racist. Sherry Ray did a great job with Haunting Massachusetts. Go pick up the book. We're taking a few, few stories. There's plenty more in there. Um, whoever said black isn't a color obviously never heard of the colorful characters known as the Black Flash of Provincetown also known as the Phantom Fiend, the Black Phantom, or Massachusetts' own version of England's Spring-Hailed Jack. Uh, here is a guy or something that stood 8 to 10 feet tall, dressed in black from head to toe, and flapped his big ugly wings or cape as he leaped over tall fences and pounced down from roadside trees at unsuspecting pedestrians. Some even said that he spit blue flames... It's a very dragon-like, dragon-human mixture type deal. Uh, he terrorized the citizens of Provincetown from 1938 to 1945. It's not that far long. Not that long ago, realistically. Um, delight, uh, delighting in the horror he evoked from each taunting encounter. It started out with school children complaining of something big and black that had been lurking behind the dunes rocks and trees, when they also added that the black thing had pointy ears and silver glowing eyes, their stories were dismissed as pure imagination. But when an adult female was accosted by the creature right near the town hall, the townspeople took notice. The woman said the creature jumped at her as if on springs, and its cape spread wide like wings in flight. Its black eyes were inhuman, like pits of black fire. 
and it made an unforgettable, horrible sound like a giant buzzing insect. Hers was the first in a series of encounters by many local residents. Young and old, male and female. Typically, the black fiend pounced from rooftops or treetops directly in front of passerbys and stared tauntingly at them. As he fled, leaving his victims paralyzed with fear, his menacing laughter trailed behind him. The police department drew up a list of all the athletic types around town who were also known to be jokesters. Assuming that they had a nimble jokester on their hands, Needless to say, the list was very short, and eventually every aspect on that list was cleared. Nobody could fathom what they had in their midst. But, whatever it was, it was seemingly unstoppable. One man confronted the creature in his backyard when his dog cornered it against his eight-foot fence. He said the phantom just laughed and bounded spryly over the fence like a superhero. Another man tried to bring the phantom down when he encountered it on the town common. But as he threw the first punch, the phantom grabbed his fist and squeezed so hard, all the while laughing his horrible, airy laughter, that the man collapsed on the ground in agony. With that, the hooded, caped phantom with silver glowing eyes was off again, eluding all attempts to capture him. Um... When reports of the creature being cornered in the schoolyard started pouring in at the police department on uh, November 1945, the officers thought it was their lucky day that they would finally unmask the troublesome caped fiend and bring him to justice. They approached the schoolyard quietly and found him cornered up against the fence. The creature took a defiant stance with hands on hips and glared at them. As the four officers moved in, warning him not to move, he burst out laughing and effortlessly leaped like bionic man over the school's ten-foot fence. It was hopeless. If Provincetown's finest could bring that their lo- could bring their local fiend, that if they couldn't bring down their local fiend, who could? The answer came a few weeks later. In December of 1945, four children were home alone when they spotted the black phantom stealthily approaching their homestead. They hurried inside and grabbed whatever they could to defend themselves, and in a split second, it was at the door. Toying with the handle as if to prolong the apprehension, it knew its young victims were failing, but it underestimated the ingenuity of youth. One of the young boys grabbed a pail of hot water and hurled it up at the rooftop with it. Good thing he'd read The Three Little Pigs. Oh, my. He tiptoed to the front side of the house until he was standing directly over the black phantom. And then he dropped the bucket of hot water down on the creature and hurried back inside. I'll jump in real quick and say if I was one of these children, I would never leave that house if I seen something like that. <laughs> Let alone go up on a roof where he could easily get. Probably the easiest place for him to get you is the roof. The children heard the predator gasp, and then it was gone. But this time, he spared them his signature laugh. There was nothing to laugh about. He'd been defeated by by the most innocent and helpless of all victims. Children, how humiliating for him, like a big bad wolf and phantom, ran off in shame as he was never seen in province again. When he felt that hot water, not knowing where it was coming from, he probably thought he was uh, having a heart attack or something. No I don't. That that one sounds like uh, 
something we said before, like a shared legend. I'm curious about the time frame when that happened, if the legends, uh, the stories uh, out of England were starting to be heard in this country, and then people started to see the same thing here, and how that would possibly uh, travel around. Water, uh, that has a tradition of cleansing, so you could have cleansed the area, the uh, yeah, the area of the spirit, mm-hmm. gotten rid of it that way. Um, there's a lot in that, but it sounds a lot like, uh, yeah, a shared legend. So something happened in the town, and then the legend just built over and over again. And of course, it was the innocence of the children that finally get rid of the bad. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's got a nice little story to it. Um, the I wonder, like, to go back into that racism thing a little bit before. I'm sure, like, back in the day, people would racist people that were scumbags would tell their kids, "You got to watch out for these people. They're they're lurking in the woods. You know, they'll grab you up and kill you." And uh, an urban legend can almost be grown out of that. What do you think? Oh, I agree. It's unfortunate that people did that or would do that. Uh, still even in some areas um, they'll use anything they can to instill fear mm-hmm. but um, yeah they could have used that it would have fed into that legend combined a lot of different things what they heard from somewhere else the racism that they have the wanting to control the children using the fear it just kind of all comes together too conveniently particularly since the children are the ones that, the innocent are the ones that get rid of it yeah, it does sound like a big, like, moral, like there's a moral at the end of it. Well, that's kind of a elaborate Aesop's fable sort of thing with a moral to it. It's yeah. quite elaborate. Where a lot of things kind of, you know, a story should people pass down and fabricate a little bit, you know. Like when it comes to these creatures and stuff. I don't know how I feel. We've talked about the creatures before. I think they're all kind of like, uh, you know, people that are uh, born... Physically, you know, with, um, you know, mutations and stuff like that. But next, we got another N. We got the N, Ray. That's all we can say. We got the N, so we can't be wrong. Um, (laughs) um, The Orleans Inn. The Orleans Inn was built in 1875 by Aaron Snow for his family of nine. After Snow and his wife passed away, the building at Three Old County Road in Nauset Harbor in Orleans sat vacant for nearly a decade. Then in, 19, then in 1900, two business-minded sisters bought it and turned it into a rooming house, where during the Roaring Twenties, it was said, several female boarders came up with their own business idea. Hmm, I wonder what it could be. Entertaining clients in their room. That's what I thought. Some years later, two prostitutes were murdered on the property. One was shot to death right in front of the parking lot. Uh, The boarding house was sold and resold, passing through many hands, allegedly including the Irish Mafia. Finally, in the 1940s, it was turned into a fine restaurant and inn and prospered. But something uh, was amiss inside, or at least in the lives of the employees working inside. The bartender hanged himself. I could see that being a setback, you know. Um, Set in the cupola, 
uh, hung himself in the cupola, whatever the cupola is. Uh, you familiar with what room that is? The cupola? The cupola? You ever heard of that? Um, I've heard of it. I got think I may have an image in my head, but I can't be sure. Is it like a bathroom or supply closet? No, no. Uh, it's hard to describe because I'm not really sure. Okay. Uh, there was a dishwasher there that also hanged himself uh, sometime later in the basement. Both of those areas reportedly are quite haunted today, I'm sure. Ed and Lori Mace, M-A-M-A-S, purchased the dilapidated inn in 1996 and were planning to level it until they learned of its history and ghosts from neighbors. They decided instead to put their hearts and souls and a couple million bucks into restoring it to its original Victorian splendor. With the help of their son Ryan and other family members, during renovations, the masses quickly discovered that the ghost stories were true. Ed occasionally returned to the inn late, to, late at night to find two front doors wide open, even though they were triple bolted each night at closing. Shadows were seen by construction workers and doors were known to open and close on their own. Several people have heard a cat meowing, even though the inn had no cats. But word has it that the two old maid sisters were quite fond of felon, felines and felons and had a number of them living there at any given time. Inexplicable drafts have been felt in the conjunction with an intangible sensation of being watched. Heavy footsteps have been heard going down into the basement. And this, I think that's almost one of the, the dude that killed himself off, the bartender. Those heavy steps of sorrow. And the sound of faint, uh, ethereal voices from the past have been reported. Uh, Ed told me that occasionally guests who are not familiar with the history of the inn have come down for breakfast in the morning and asked to hear about the poltergeist because they sensed a presence and wanted to know uh, more. Um, he said that recently glasses have been observed sliding off tables as if being pushed by an invisible source. One night after a waitress had blown out all the candles... I wonder if it was just the candles. Oh! And the tables, she returned a short time later to the dining area and found every one of them relit and burning brightly. And the previous owner admitted that one night when she was locking up, she said her usual casual, Good night, Fred, to the ghost rumen to haunt the place and was stunned to hear him reply with a teasingly drawn out, Good night. Uh, there was nobody else in the restaurant that night, but the voice coming from the shadows was clear as day. One can almost picture the devilish ghost grinning as it uh, cidered, adding, Sweet dreams. That'd be the last day I ever worked at that place, I'll tell you that. <laughs> That'll be a little too much for me. I could, I've, Like I've said before, I've heard my name... I've heard my name off in the distance in places, but if I ever had anything respond to me asking a question or saying something, looking for some type of question or interaction and heard something, I'd be, I'd be a little beside myself, I feel. Um, but what would you think of the, the, this, this inn? Uh, I'd say the 
with the rich history behind it, there's a very good chance that it is legitimately haunted. Yeah. There's been enough tragedy and enough tough lives, people who had difficult lives in there, that, uh, yeah, there would be ghosts that, st- that stay around. I'm curious about the old ladies. Were they considered witches? I don't know. They, not in the story, but they could. You never know. There could have been a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, too. You know, I think that during that, during the Victorian era and, 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 and way back, I think it was, I think there was more interest in it probably back then than now, where everybody was kind of looking for answers to life. Um, and that, I assume, you know, it would be like rock and roll stuff. <laughs> you know? Like, um, <laughs> whoo! Like, you know, the dark arts, um, you know, rebel, bad boy, bad girl type stuff that would, it would draw in a certain, a certain type of person, you know, because uh, I, I happen to think that every, as far as types of people go, there's only a handful of types of people. I mean, there's, of course, trillions upon trillions of people, but I feel like personality wise and the way they act, you can probably break it down to maybe five to ten different types of people in the world. Um, and, uh, so I feel, I, I do feel like that they would, you know, the, the, the same way that we have people question everything and want to know more about that dark side. Um, now I assume there'd be just as many back then as well, you know? Um, the reason I asked about the witches, I was curious because of the, uh, idea of the cats being seen. Yeah. Interesting. Well, the cats, on the one hand, uh, if you go way back, were the witches' familiars. Okay. Um, but there's another story that goes, uh, and this goes back to medieval times. Like, we we now say that cats have nine lives. Yeah. The old story was that a witch could transform into a cat, but she could only do it eight times. If she did it a ninth, it was her last life, and she finished it as a cat. So and a cat has nine lives. That's where nine lives comes from, huh? That's it. It's, it's, it's interesting that it comes from like a witch. There's been a few things that, like holidays and stuff, and you know other things. We'll, we should do an episode on it where like things that started in almost dark places but have become just you know well known in pop culture. You know, like like the cat having nine lives I never would I never would have put together the witch aspect to that but it makes perfect sense well you were sneezing uh, if I heard you correctly yeah twice um and people say bless you that's because the old idea was that when you sneeze when you exhaled back in was when you were vulnerable right after that sneeze and you might inhale a bad spirit and it might possess you ah see See, ancient times in the modern future. Ain't that something? It's interesting. We'll have to do an episode on all that stuff. We'll be back to episodes soon. Our next story. The Hyena Hunt. Ray, are you ready for the Hyena Hunt? Oh, yeah. Just let me strap something on my hip and we'll go hunting. <laughs> yeah. We don't got no hyenas. We got coyotes. That's the closest thing to a a hyena around here, I think. We got... All right. It appears that in the mid-1800s, a creature not even remotely native to this part of the world terrorized the Cape Cod town of Wellfleet, 
According to newspaper accounts of the time, hideous noises were sometimes heard at night, and strange footprints were found in the band. The sand, rather. Barnyards and chicken coops were under siege, and women uh, and children were afraid to go outside. A massive hunt was organized for an animal believed to be a hyena, based on the description provided by those who had glimpsed the awful beast. Though none could imagine where such creature could have come from. Maybe it escaped from the Bridgewater Triangle or Father West from the Quabbin Reservoir. Both known for their bizarre animal sightings or maybe if it really was a hyena, it somehow arrived by boat from Africa. That would be my guess, India or the Middle East. Uh, whatever it was, it was never found, so it could be definitely... I, 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 it, blah, blah, blah. it was never found so that it could be def definitely identified. As the hyena hunt went on, the hideous noises drifted farther and farther away until the nights finally became silent once again. But the legend was memorialized in a poem by Dr. Thomas Newcomb in his 1869 book, Cape Cod Rhymes. Stone was the Wellfleet physician who enjoyed writing what he called rhymes rather than poetry. He was the first rapper right there. Um, <laughs> a portion of his rhyme called the Hina Hunt as follows. And before I jump into the his, his rhyme, um, I, I would say that my opinion of it would probably be that it, he, it was brought over on a boat. Um, and from that, you know, it, it was released, or maybe somebody had one for a pet before there was rules and regulations about stuff like that, and um, it escaped or was let go. And um, also, like I don't, I'd be, I'd say that it's very possible. Um, I today I have a real sense of um, of trickery in, in my in my head. So like I also wanna for this I want to say that it's possible that people just heard. Maybe a dog growling or something and spun a spun a tail, because um, when you if you wanted to try and get people if you didn't want people to be outside whether it be kids or whatever, the best thing to tell them is there's hyena out there and if if you, they catches you in the dock, it's gonna jump, eat you eat you eat you pick your bones clean. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, all you need is one other parent somewhere to go out there and start making the noise and you got everybody scared. Yeah, that's all it takes. The word travels fast. Because um, a hyena hunt is an interesting one where it's not quite paranormal. I almost kind of wonder why it's in the book. But I'll uh, I'll finish. I got the poem. That's all that's left. I'll read the poem. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I give you The Hyena Hunt by Dr. Thomas Newcomb Stone. In Wellfleet, when the sun was low, all the bloodless lay the untrodden snow. And dark and dreary was the flow of the Atlantic dashing ceaselessly. But Wellfleet saw another sight when the horns were blown at morning light, assembling men with muskets bright to join the hunt right willingly. Oh, few could tell when many met when the hunt was o'er and the sun was set, with legs well tired and faces wet, what foe they chased so valiantly. And still as though, as through those woods of pine, 
the traveler wends at eve's decline he stands to hear the fearful whine of hyena's dreadful mystery some vow it is lioness bore the ship from africa sunny shore that paces now our cape sands o'er moaning for whelps mostly piteously some still a hyena whose fearful howl had shook the woods of Tonagal, in company with the fierce jackal fighting the fella hideously he has kind of a rhyme uh, he, he doesn't end his rhymes well but um, he starts off strong and then falls short some, some unbelievers with taunting snare swore twas a goat a dog a deer whose footsteps magnified by fear had seized the fearful hearted but though there those fearful footsteps stand embedded on Atlantic strand and the moaning cry runs through the land as if from loved ones parted yeah I mean he I don't think he'd make it in the hip-hop world today you know what I mean <laughs> he'd just be a SoundCloud rapper at this point um, I enjoyed the poem like I said he, he the last word of his of his little stanzas there, whatever you call them, didn't rhyme. I'm sure he was going for uh, rebellious artistic credibility there or something. But, uh, yeah, like, do you have anything else to kind of say about the, the hyena situation? Uh, it may not have been a hyena if you stick with a hyena theme yeah. and you go far enough back and someone was, let's say, in Africa and they got what they thought was a puppy and you take that long ship ride back by the time they get back if they had their hands on an actual hyena, yeah. they wouldn't keep it. It would it would be let go, and it wouldn't survive that long. So the legend would uh, go on for a little bit and then die out. You don't think it would survive? I mean, I, I granted that the the Cape gets cold, but during the summer it's pretty pretty nice, and they're coming from Africa and stuff. So like it would come from hot weather, and it could eat bunnies and dogs and you know animals like it, that and survive probably. it might survive for a while but it would be in competition with coyotes uh any wild or feral dogs that were about um anything like that would be its competition it would have no way to breed with anything so once its lifespan however long it went um was over well, that's the end of it and it just moves into legend yeah because i mean it's all on its own it doesn't have a pack of its own like the other those other things you listed Coyotes roam in packs. Usually, dogs if the feral dogs find each other, you know. But, um, yep. Our next episode up, little no little green men. So we're about to hit some UFO uh, territory here. All right, no little green men. The following case was mentioned in Ray Fowler's case book of a UFO investigator and is also one of many cases recorded in the Massachusetts MUFON files. On March 27th, 1979... Remember what you were doing on March 27th, 1979, Ray? Uh, nope. Alright, well, this guy, this young man, was driving down Edgartown Oak Bluffs Road on Martha's Vineyard at about 10 p.m. when he noticed a green glow coming from behind the sand dunes to his right. He thought that perhaps it was people uh, using glow sticks on the beach, 
but the glow brightened, and he was soon able to see the source of the light. In the water offshore was a luminous green cylinder with rounded ends. The man stopped his car but kept the engine running and realized his radio was picking up a strange low-frequency humming sound. He watched the object rise slowly out of the water until it was nearly overhead, casting glow across the wide area of beach and water. He grabbed for a flashlight but was unable to use it because all he could move was his head. The rest of his body had become temporarily paralyzed. All he could do was watch the object for several minutes until it sped out of sight. Interestingly, his Timex, which he'd been meaning to adjust, was suddenly set correctly and worked accurately for a month following the incident. Even though it had been running so fast that it was three days ahead of time of the UFO sighting. Real quick with that, I'll ask you, would you think that you these UFOs... Uh, they got to have way better technology than we have. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, and that technology might also interact with our te- technology. Um, so, yeah, it might have some uh, some effect on it. Yeah, I think some of the th- I think that some of the people, you know, that have created some of our biggest things, uh, aircrafts, you know, the internet and computers, I think they they were all I think they were visited at one point, and somebody gave them the, uh, if if not the, the the game plan, the the idea, and placed in their imagination that it could be done. Okay, uh, the young man's story was all the more believable because he was an auxiliary policeman and was well known by the local police force. It was not in his character to exaggerate or make up stories. Even he'd said, "Little green men came out of the green flying object." Nobody at the station would have doubted him. He spoke earnestly and was noticeably shaken when he gave his statement to the Oak Bluffs police. He was an ideal witness, reacting exactly the way one might expect to uh, from someone who had just seen a UFO. Now, I believe in UFOs and that there's something out there, but if somebody told me they seen little green men running around... I don't know. I don't know if I could take that. And I'm a believer. It's just something that society's kind of painted the alien thing to be so. We talked about this before, where they kind of they make it they make it so like like uh, unbelievable in a way. Like 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 little green men. The idea of little green men is um, I'd, I'd I'd wonder if they were they had a stroke moment or something like that. One of their tubes, one of their oxygen tubes shut down from the brain for a moment and didn't quite connect. It's just something about little green men that make me do that because it's been so, you know, hypocrisized and so mocked. Um, The whole idea of a green person that even has been burnt in my head. You know, green men is like the 40s TV. It's not even green men like... Nowadays, you would have, it's a gray, you know what I mean? They would, you would have somebody describe to you an alien, and they would do the gray with the big head and the big eyes type deal. Now, that Oak Bluff, is that the Oak Bluff on Martha's Vineyard? I think it is, yeah. Because uh, that is the, on Martha's Vineyard, that is the party town part of it. Okay. That's where the concentration of bars and nightclubs, and that's the party area. Yeah, I could so yeah, I could see that then. They want to join the party. 
<laughs> you think there has any? You know, I mean, I, that would if you know, party towns. But it makes more sense for the for the, uh, an identified life would want to investigate what's popping. You know, what what's what's what the what's getting all the attention. Um, so I mean, it makes sense that it would be in more a party town. You know what I mean? What do you think? What are your thoughts on that? You think that the, the fact that it was a party town played into anything, or it was just kind of a coincidence? Um, I think it's a coincidence. Yeah. Um, as for Green Men, uh, I got my doubts. Uh, maybe they were partying too much, and that's the color they saw. They are also on that part of Martha's Vineyard on the bluff. You get a, at times, depending upon the weather, you get a lot of fog. Yeah. You may have get gotten distortions so that uh, something, depending upon how it was lit up, could appear to be green to you or uh, have a different color or a different hue to it yeah. so even if the person was sober they may have seen something which in broad daylight they wouldn't see as green but they may have under the right circumstances at night and I mean there's people that claim they've seen like lawn gnomes running around and you know small leprechauns and stuff where, where do you put that Are you, what, what's your opinion of, of gnomes and small human like creatures that are small um, you're going to go back a lot into the legends. Um, you're going to go into cryptozoology. Yeah. Um, that's a whole big different area there as, as far as the little ones go. Yeah. And yeah, um, I mean, Massachusetts has its own, particularly uh, over the uh, Bridgewater Triangle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, then the Bridgewater Triangle has their Pugawaji, you know, lore. Which are kind of, I could, Pugawajis I kind of put in the same category as like a leprechaun, if you will, you know what I mean? Saying, bringing up leprechaun is, uh, that's like talking about Bigfoot as well. That's probably even less likely in the minds of people than Bigfoot. Do you know what the leprechaun, do you know what the actual the take on what leprechauns are? Uh, no, but if it's what I think it is, um... If you're talking about many legends that go back to medieval times, yeah. uh, for instance, right now we see fairies as cute little things, and you've got Tinkerbell and got all these little fairies. Uh, back in medieval times, fairies were, were fearsome creatures that lived in the woods, and yeah. you didn't want to encounter one. It evolved, the story of them evolved over a period of time. I think that might be applied to leprechauns too. Now there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I suspect that at one time uh, leprechauns were not something you wanted to encounter. You think that they're real things or they're all kind of things that were made up in the imagination because of maybe just knowing how, how vast and undiscovered forests are, you know, and that was coming from a time where Forests were really forests, you know what I mean? Before every all the buildings and houses and all that came into play where it was nothing but land, you know what I mean? You also had the forces of nature that was not understood. It was darkness. Mm -hmm. um, you could take one thing that may exist or, you know, if something was out there, it just gets embellished and it gets turned into a legend. I'm not saying there aren't any... Uh, forces of nature unexplained there are such as elementals 
but uh, over the time that all jumps from culture to culture each culture puts its own spin on it and as we progressed over hundreds of years many of them like the fairies and the leprechauns became harmless compared to the way they originally were I mean if you were living out let's say you were a farmer in medieval times anything past your farm that was dark and deadly to you you didn't know what was out there it wasn't lit Um, and it was scary yeah, I um I agree with that. Yeah, so we'll, we, me and Ray both don't know how we feel about those little green men. The description, um, it's very Twilight Zone like. You know what I mean? Like somebody, whenever if I heard that, I'd say you watch one too many movies. Now, if they said gray, it's kind of interesting how it's like that. Where if somebody says, "Oh, I seen." An alien, it was a gray alien with, you know, big head and big eyes, and people would go, oh, oh, they take it more seriously than somebody saying, oh, I've seen these little green men running around a spaceship. You know what I mean? Well, we see something we don't understand, possibly see it, uh, we're in a fearful or excited state, and possibly don't see it clearly, but we see something, whether in the shadows or the light, we don't understand it. We automatically relate it to what we know. And we turn around and go, oh, it's a gray. Now, maybe in a moment of clarity, if we had a camera, you'd find out it's not gray, the eyes weren't that big, et cetera, et cetera. But in that moment of panic, we project onto what we're seeing, mm-hmm. uh, what we want to see. That's fairly common. Um, an example I'll put is that um, if you go into certain areas, particularly out in the West, they have caves with drawings. Uh, from the different native tribes out there. And quite often people go and look at it and they see the shape of it and they go, oh look, that's an alien. It looks, it has what looks like a spacesuit and a space helmet. A helmet for a spacesuit on it. Well that's what we want to see. The people at the time, probably a shaman or a medicine man who had a vision, tried to relate something not of this world to this world and drew a shape. Yeah. But we're putting our identification on it. And maybe in the 40s, it's a green man. Now it's grays. Who knows what it was hundreds of years ago out in the West uh, when the visions came of the person saw beyond this world. Mm-hmm. But we have a tendency to put our vision on it, our identity on top of it, put our stamp on it. True. True. We got one more UFO uh, story, and then we got <coughs> one more story after that. So, our next UFO story is UFO sightings of the rich and famous. Interesting. Uh, UFOs are often spotted around Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard. Even famous folks who have admitted to seeing them. Actor Dan Aykroyd, who's very into Alien. He's a very... um, It'd be cool to get him on the show one of these days. But he's, uh, he's, he's always down to talk about UFO stuff. But he mentioned his own 1986 UFO sighting, Ghostbuster time, right around Ghostbusters too. Uh, his UFO sighting in the writ in the review he wrote for David Serrata's evidence, the case for NASA's UFOs. He and his wife were at their home in Chilmark on the island of Martha's Vineyard. When they witnessed two flying objects, he described as tiny, perfectly round, luminous bodies traveling in tandem at high velocity. 
Two guests staying with them at the time also saw the UFOs. There was no logical explanation for what they all saw. They agreed the objects weren't airplanes, helicopters, planets, shooting stars, satellites, or any other airborne object known to them. The sighting confirmed Aykroyd's lifelong belief that UFOs do exist. Other prominent names have not admitted to seeing them, yet rumor has it that a certain U.S. president whose family compound is in the Hyannis uh, port bore witness to the genuine alien spacecraft from aboard his pleasure cruiser one day. Those are the Kennedys they're speaking of, and we talked about them, how good old JFK and Marilyn Monroe went to go see the aliens, and not Area 51, but a, a situation, a very little compound close to Area 51, and it's speculation that that is, in fact, the real thing that kind of got her wiped off the map. But um, according to a family member who was there, everyone on board saw a large, dish-shaped, metal, metallic gray object come toward the president's boat. It made no sound. It had no noticeable means of propulsion. The object hovered for less than a minute, while Secret Service agents scrambled about helplessly, before zooming out of sight. That event effectively cut the pleasure crew short, and everyone involved was told not to discuss the incident. Our lips are sealed. All the the girls, uh, John F. Kennedy and and Robert Kennedy had that boat filled up with uh, all types of women, and they were all snuffed out probably after seeing something like that. Yeah, the Kennedy, I guess Kennedy's a weird situation. I really want to get into that one of these days. It might be a Behold Your Pill podcast situation. Maybe we'll bring Raymond, Ray, our buddy Ray Booten, right? Bring Ray over, <laughs> and uh, we'll put him on the show to talk about him. Um, but yeah, that's more, that, that one was a little lame. I think they just wanted to mention the fact that Dan Aykroyd, seen an alien once. I think that's what that was. But yeah, Dan Aykroyd's very big on the paranormal and aliens and UFO life and all that stuff. He would be a great guest to get. Um, our, our last story of, of not only the Cape and surrounding areas, surrounding islands, but this will be our last story from Haunted, Massachusetts by Sherry Reve. It's been a good ride. Like I said before, if you, you, if the audience, you folks out there like these stories, I'd support her by stopping off and picking up a book, because we kind of used their book as a guideline, and we talked about some stories and some stories we did not. So get your fix, and uh, help us get in less trouble. So, the last story is called "Set Stills." Uh, don't dawdle along the way or the set stills will get you. That's what old-time Nantucketers told their children and grandchildren to make them go straight home for dinner. And the story continues to be passed down through the generations. Set stills are ghosts that sit on the fences of Nantucket cemeteries waiting for innocent victims to walk by so they can grab them. When I was a kid... I heeded warning of the air cutter lurking in the hallway of my grandmother's high-rise apartment building. That I was just creeped out by two different things in like one sentence right there. 
the fact that there's these set stills, which I've never heard of, which actually sounds pretty cool and pretty scary, and then an air cutter lurking in a hallway. That's um, creepy. Uh, waiting for mischievous children to try to escape the stuffy senior housing confines. But set stills are a new one for me. You've got to love the ingenuity of our elders to keep the young whippersnappers in line. If you're inclined to check out the theory of set skills yourself, the best place to find them is at the Old North Cemetery on New Lane, which is said to be quite haunted. This was once a private burial ground um, for the Gardiner family, but the Nantucket Historical Association became the official caretaker of the property in 1924. Little Abigail Gardiner, who died in 1709, was the first person buried there and is believed to still haunt the cemetery. Children of the islands once spoke of a small child named Mary Abbey, who told them she was looking for her father in the cemetery. Could Mary Abbey and Abigail Gardiner be one and the same? No stones with either name has been found until the early 1980s, when the town crews found a small headstone hidden under some brush in the area of the cemetery they were clearing. It was for a three-year-old girl named Mary Abbey. So the children had been right. Such a child had existed, and she may still be there today, setting still on the fence, waiting for you. So that was an interesting where... um, it was kind of like these creature things, and then it took the form of a girl or something. I don't, I don't, I don't really know where they were going with that, but um, yeah, that they sounded creepy. That ear cutter thing, I'm more interested in that too. That's kind of, you know, it, it goes into the what what children see when they're kids, which I also find very creepy because even if it's their imagination coming up with this weird ghoul, it's got to kind of stem from somewhere. I feel. Um, so whenever I see or hear a kid talking about, you know, some creepy stuff, it's like, where do they get that? Like, they, they don't just pull that out of their butt, you know what I mean? Like, they had to have actually seen something, or maybe they seen something on TV, or a book, or a magazine, or a movie, and um, that kind of, you know, sparked up their imagination. But the kids' things always bother me. I don't know if I ever told this story on the show. I might have. It's a story about a witch and my uncle told me this story and it's about when he was a teen when he was a kid when my uncle was a kid he used to have these nightmares of um a witch that was in the corner of his room laughing at him and he said that it was a you know it was a big deal in his youth it was kind of like a uh you know it was like his boogeyman and i wonder if everybody i wonder if everybody kind of had their own little boogeyman coming up because I remember as a kid there was a certain boogeyman I had or a boogie woman rather that was uh, would always come to me in the same dream and it had the same look um, but to finish off the witch story so he, through his throughout his youth he had this this he was having these nightmares of a witch laughing at him in the corner of his room in the dark and when he got when he you know became a man and had a, had a, had his first uh had his first kid um he said you know when the, when his kid was roughly around that age his kid w- woke up you know screaming one night and he went into the bedroom 
to check on the kid and see what the story was. And he said that he, he, you know, the, his kid told him that there was a witch in the corner of his room laughing at him from the shadows. And he said that he his spine, like, warped out of place and all the hairs jumped up off of his flesh. And he said he's never been that creeped out before in his life. So, like, that, that those tie-ins are very interesting. And the fact that his son's seen it, too. And the guy who told me isn't a guy that would lie about it. He'd rather say, nah, it's just all, there's nothing, it's fake. It's, you know, it's all bullshit. He definitely wouldn't just spin a tail to spin a tail. And to go back to the boogeyman thing, or the boogeywoman thing, and I used to have nightmares of, like, a, a boogeywoman that was in, like, black sweatpants, black and blue striped sweater, um, and she had, like, a big frizzy afro. Um, it was a white lady. Um, so, like, the afro was weird on her. It wasn't quite working for her. But her whole deal with her is that she would chase me down and she'd tickle me. And, like, I'd wake up hyperventilating, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know if I ever told this story about when I was really young, my grandmother used to... Um, she was like a like an aide, and she for the mentally handicapped and the mentally retarded, she would like take them out and do things with them, um, like a social worker type thing. And every now and then, she'd bring them back to the house where I, my mother and I lived with her and her brothers and sisters. So like I would be there, and there was this one girl that was you know mentally retarded, and every time she'd see me, she'd chase me, she'd start laughing. And she'd chase me through the house, and, she, and, and she, when, when she caught up with me, she'd jump on top of me and she'd tickle me. And I remember that caused, like, like trauma to, to the young Matt Fisher's mind because I remember, like, I'd be on... She wasn't, it wasn't anything, you know, cynical, or she wasn't trying to be, be bad or mean or whatever, but, like, I remember just not laughing and not being able to breathe and breathe and that, like put that fear in me that I think created that boogeyman, if you will, you know what I mean, in my head. So I wonder if, like, I wonder what the story is with the, if every, did you, when you were a kid, did you have a boogeyman or any, like, any certain type of monster or whatever it is that, you know, you'd see in the dark or, you know, like, you were haunted by, so to speak? Uh, not really. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, not, not that I can recall. Okay. I mean, I had dreams, but uh, no not anything I would see in the room. Uh, reoccur. Well, I didn't see her in the room. I they were in my dreams. Uh, well, I mean, the girl, the younger girl, was real life, but then the, the boogie woman type deal was a dream. So did you ever have reoccurring characters that weren't real in your dreams? Do you remember? Um, well, I had one that for the longest time was this hideous thing that would be chasing me down like corridors yeah. until later in life. At one point, I stopped and turned around to face it, and it turned out that it was my misunderstanding. It may have looked hideous, but uh, it was actually quite gentle. But... Outside of that, the most interesting one I had is I had a reoccurring dream that um, lasted for several months. It would pop up every several days. And then it disappeared 
Now, it was in a different place than I was living at the time. Mm-hmm. And I can remember it was something like, I don't know, five, six months later, the dream came back. And I was walking through this place, and it looked a little different. And I didn't understand why. And I kept on walking, and there was a cemetery. And I went into the cemetery, and I looked down. I was drawn to a grave, and I looked at it. And my name was on the grave. And at that point, I heard a voice say, you don't belong here anymore. And I've never had the dream again. It's good that he said you don't belong here instead of uh, your home. Welcome home. You know what I mean? Well, you could say it may have been either a parallel life or a past life, something that I was living or had lived, and uh, I didn't belong there anymore. Yeah. Yeah, there's some, the, the subconscious is a weird, uh, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. You know, why we think the things, why we dream the things we do and stuff. I, mean, I think we both believe that we have dreams for a reason and there's meanings behind all the dreams. It's not just your imagination. You, you ate a cheeseburger too late at night, so now you're having this, this crazy dream of, you know, whatever. But everything's on purpose, uh, and I think every kind of thought is intentional, you know? If you go back to the cemetery and the little girl, it could be the little girl on a fence looking for someone to play with. She's waiting for someone to come by and play with, or for her family to come by to take her away out of that place. I wonder if she was uh, grabbed up by one of the one of those um, set-still things. Or maybe trickery. If they were looking, if they were really looking to get some people, then uh, you gotta get more flies with honey. You know what I mean? You gotta get being a, an innocent-looking kid. You gotta catch more than being some like ghoul from the movie The Gate type deal. It looks like that's what I'm envisioning. Well, yeah, evil will present itself in a way that is attractive. Uh... I mean, if you're talking, you're looking at evil, it's not going to come as something hideous because you'll run away. Um, depending upon what you like, it may be handsome, it may be beautiful, it may be a child, but it's not going to appear as something that, uh, is going to scare you because what good does that do? It wants to ensnare you. It wants to trap you. True. Yeah. Scary. It was a creepy one, but that was, uh, you know, that was a long haul for the folks that came with us. That was like a five-episode little mini-series type deal with a, we had a little break in between. But, yeah, we rocked out Haunted Massachusetts, you know, our uh, our homeland. And, uh, yeah, five-part. You know, five so that was cool. I don't know if we'll get into other, other places. It's kind of uh, as far as, you know, states and stuff. Um We've still got plenty more stuff to talk about from Massachusetts, as well as, you know, we're going to try and do, get back into some more themed episodes of, um, you know, good discussion on interesting paranormal things. And we're starting to pick up with, um, we got a bunch of guests coming, coming for uh, the show for you guys out there. And, uh, yeah, so it's just a matter of breaking them up and placing them in the right position, but... I know next Wednesday we're shooting, uh, we're recording 
a new episode with um, another paranormal team, and we got some more paranormal teams that want to be on the show, so things are starting to pick up, and uh, like I said before, doing pretty good are the numbers, our numbers are doing pretty good, and uh, we're going to try and keep it moving, and thank you everybody who's out there helping us, supporting us with the whole, with, with getting these numbers, and you know, supporting the show, it's appreciated, we see you all out there, and... Yeah, thanks. You want to say anything else in closing, right? Uh, not really. I want to thank them for listening. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, just keep your mind open, and we'll just all keep exploring together. Hell yeah! All right. Well, everybody out there, be safe. We'll catch y'all on the next episode of Mostly Ghostly. (laughs) 